Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello, and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandy Schilace, Editor-in-Chief, and today it is my distinct privilege to bring two people onto our podcast, one of whom you've heard from before, Alice Wong, who is a disabled activist based in San Francisco and founder of the Disability Visibility Project. She's also the editor of the anthology Disability Visibility, First-Person Stories from the 21st Century. And today joining me too is Alyssa Brigart, who is an anesthesiologist and ethicist at Stanford University. And so thank you both for coming and joining me today on the Medical Humanities Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Brittany. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. I'd like to start off because I, I really want to hear from you about the projects and the work that you're doing, especially as it regards disability. So I was wondering if we could just have a little bit of an introduction from each of you. Um, And Alyssa, as you're new with us, let's start with you. Sure. I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist and ethicist. So I'm the person when children are having surgery, I'm the person who makes sure that they're safe and comfortable. And my other role is I'm a clinical ethicist. So I help clinicians and families who are struggling with really difficult healthcare decisions and internally trying to help help folks navigate those gray spaces. That's wonderful. And I think that's a really important place to be, um, and especially now uh, of all times. Uh, Alice, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for the audience members who might not have heard you before? Thank you, Brandy. So I'm a disabled person who's... I guess a little bit of everything. Uh, I'm an activist. I used to be uh, in academia. I used to work at the UC San Francisco as a staff research associate. And I started the Disability Visibility Projects in 2014. And it just kind of snowballed into an online community. And you know, this is part of, you know, the my life's work in terms of how so many disabled perspectives on every single issue are really not, uh, not centered. And I think uh, one thing that I'm so delighted to be, you know, here with Alyssa is that, you know, bioethics has always been a really, uh, a personal topic to me mm-hmm. because there's so much ableism in bioethics and I've been just really thankful and delighted to be connected with Alyssa and I found Alyssa through Twitter so it can't be all trash so I'm, <laughs> so I'm very excited for this and Alyssa is a real ally in a, in a very kind of real non-performative way, so I'm very thankful to call her one of my comrades. 
You know, and I, I just want to say, um, just in full disclosure, which normally I don't do a lot of this on the podcast, but I've met both of you through online means because in this world, especially those of us who have chronic illness or disability, we don't always mix out in public the way other, you know, I'm not going to mixers <laughs> personally. Mm-hmm. So the online community has been really valuable. I met both of you through Twitter. Um, I am myself someone who suffers from chronic illness. I, I work from home a lot. I'm a gender fluid person. There's all sorts of reasons that the online community can be um, valuable and, and a real asset. And so I'm really pleased to have made both of your acquaintances and I'm excited for the conversation we're going to have today. I hope our listeners will enjoy it as much as I know I will. Um, and where we're, where we, this conversation started for those of us who are joining us today is we were discussing the ways in which, um, disabled people are disenfranchised in a number of ways, right? Uh, but one of them is in terms of getting the vaccine at all um, in this pandemic period, not only have disabled people been at greater risk and also having very difficult time with accessibility issues, but even in the vaccine rollout, many of them were left behind. And so that's kind of where this conversation started. So I thought, why don't we start there and talk a little bit about this and the, the problems therein? Alyssa, do you want to go first and then I'll jump in? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that's been obviously challenging for so many of us is that the pandemic has been uh, like building the plane while you're flying it is a metaphor I've heard a number of times that has really resonated. And one of the things that I've really struggled with is noticing how when people who have the ability to make you know, policy decisions, organizational decisions, really have centered their own experiences, what can happen is that there are entire swaths of the population, such as disabled, you know, people with disabilities, disabled people who are are left behind. And in the vaccine rollout conversations, it was really something where people said, well, you know, we really just need to focus on age because it's simple. And I think what's important as ethicists is that we try to really take into account just because something simple doesn't mean it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And just because something simple doesn't mean it's what's right. And just because something's fast, even if we're looking for speed, that may not be the only factor that's important. And it's valuable for us to try to really look at these things from different perspectives and make sure that we're really valuing the diversity of humans who are here on this planet with us. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, this pandemic has really revealed all the systemic inequities, you know, just thinking about race, thinking about class, but also about disability. Uh, you know, uh, so much of how our society values or doesn't value disabled people has really been explicit as you know last year I was on your podcast with Dr. Joe Stravato talking about the ways that healthcare has been allocated and talking about triage protocols and you know this is just another kind of very real example of how Disabled people are not getting the same kind of treatment or considered worthy of receiving life-saving treatments 
what they needed to do, whether it's because of COVID or not. This is already a piece of faith that's, uh, that does happen. And, uh, medical discrimination regarding disability has been a long-standing problem. So that layered on top of being at higher risk for COVID and, uh, clearly, uh, hopefully your audience realizes that, you know, in our country, 40% of that's related to COVID so far has been taking a place in long-term care facilities, mm-hmm. which are primarily older and disabled people. And, uh, you know, this rollout has been really difficult and painful to me personally, as a disabled person who said, I struggled myself getting uh, access to a vaccine. And, you know, here I am thinking about, oh, not living in a very progressive state that should know better, that should do better, but they did it. And, uh, you know, this is a problem across all states. Uh, just think about very broad access issues, you know, prioritization. A lot of states are, you know, did not prioritize disabled people or put them on the second or third tier. Yeah, many states now, uh, as Elizabeth mentioned, are, have already opened it up to all ages to speed things up. Also, a lot of websites, you know, to make appointments are not accessible for mm-hmm. people who use screen reader software mm-hmm. or it requires, a, you know, needing uh, Wi-Fi or broadband services. Uh, the fact that you need an appointment mm-hmm. is also a barrier itself. I've also heard from other disabled folks, you know, clearly mass vaccination sites where they're drive-by. Mm-hmm. That's a huge barrier because they're not in places where, you know, public transit is available. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that there are, you know, I think a significant number of, especially high-risk people, who cannot leave their homes. And, you know, there are not homebound, you know, delivery services yet. I think that's, uh, I don't understand why mobile vaccination hasn't been a priority or hasn't been something that people thought about starting, you know, last winter when mm-hmm. we knew that vaccines were traveling because you know, it shouldn't be too, too radical idea to go where the people who did it both go where they are. And yeah. here we are with still, I think, quite a few number of a bunch of very older people and people with disabilities who physically cannot leave their homes. And they should have been prioritized for the vaccine. And yet, now, with their plentiful, now with their available to everyone, they're still not getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. To me, that is a real concern. It's a tragedy, really, I think. Alyssa? 
Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that's been so striking to me in looking at the rollout across the United States is, you know, many jurisdictions, most jurisdictions, I would argue, have some sort of disability programming that is supposed to serve their communities. And it's been very interesting to me to see how local governments and state governments sometimes have even forgotten that they actually already have some infrastructure, people who know the community, who are well-connected, who understand the needs in the community um, better, of course, than the people at the top. And so I think it's so valuable to really just say, hey, what are we already doing that we can use to the advantage of the people in our community. And I don't think that this is some revolutionary idea that we should meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I think we, we, last year we had a podcast where we were talking about designing for disability and that is so rarely done, even in, we were talking about products, but this is true of systems, it's true of uh, social, you know, programs. It's true of all kinds of things that it's, it so often is an afterthought, like, oh yeah, and there are people who have disabilities, we'll, we'll stick this on at the end, as opposed to realizing that you actually have, if you, if you sat down and made it part of the planning process, um, and, and this, is true, this is true for disab dis disabled people, but it's also true of minorities. If you sat down and you made human beings a priority and you gave everybody uh, the dignity of the fact that they are equal lives, you know, programs would be designed very differently. But I think this is also a, a very telling indictment on public health mm -hmm. in terms of they don't value our lives. You know, they look at mortality, they look at numbers, you know, and sometimes the numbers don't really tell the story. And I understand that that's kind of they're trading a perspective, but I feel like, uh, you know, there were a lot of conflicts, did a lot of education that had to be done, at least in California, with those who were making the decisions about the rollout, which many of which were in the public health field. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think there were other community-based disabled stakeholders doing a lot of work behind the scenes, but so much of it was catch-up. Mm -hmm. Did other departments and other entities, whether it's at the states, at the city, or federal level, you know, do see disabled uh, advocacy or services more in the social service realm versus why don't we you know, consider them a resource in, you know, every aspect mm -hmm. of healthcare, you know, and I think that's, that's least of the way so many things are siloed, and I think that's also a problem too, right? Like, you know, so many kind of healthcare providers and policymakers keep preaching about, you know, person-centric care. Well, this is as not person centered as you could get. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I, I'm I'm 100% in agreement with you, and I also think, you know, um, I, I it's it's funny because I just released a book, and one of the things that came up a lot in that book was the fact that someone out there is making decisions about which lives matter, 
in medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in some ways, it's as though we as a public have, you know, lost that responsibility to someone else. And we and it's hard to figure out exactly who's making those decisions. But it's clear that they're being made based on how services are are being rendered to the public. Yeah, I think this is part of a it's not just like one person or a group, but definitely it's an institutional culture as well, I think, because I think so many institutions are just upholding the status quo. They don't want to open things up. They don't want to be accountable. They don't want to change. And I think if there's anything to come out of this pandemic, is the fact that there are recognizations, that there are definitely far stronger calls for equity and uh, transparency. So I hope, I hope that this is part of the ongoing equity work that you know every public official, you know, that we demand of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Actually, that, that's a really good point. And I, I actually want to jump off what you just said there, um, Alice, and, and ask both of you, you know, uh, what's next? I mean, I think that there's a lot of things that have gone wrong as a result of the rollout, the pandemic, the way you know, it's it revealed a lot of inequalities and made them front and center. It's not as though they're new, right? They've been there, but they've certainly become much more visible. And so, you know, how do we move on from here? What what would you, Alyssa, I know you're actually in uh, a, a university hospital, you're a clinical associate professor. Um, you know, what do we do now? What's What's the way forward? And what do you hope for? It's a great question. And, you know, in, in listening to this conversation and in my reflections on it, I just, just as we continue to have the deep stain of, of racism throughout our country, ableism, you know, really comes from the eugenics movement. And it is, mm -hmm. it remains deeply embedded in the psyche of our country, in our medical education, in our nursing education. Right. You know, we, we really center oftentimes some core ideas that are that are deeply harmful to other human beings. And so in in my work, I really try to elevate what, you know, who is the patient as a person when we're talking about an individual person and really ensuring that we are taking that person as a, as a full person, full of dignity and ensuring that we're not making assumptions about who they are and what they need and what is going to be beneficial. And then at, when we start to, to move outwards into, in terms of are our policies reaching that, uh, that aim and then what's happening, you know, within our governments and how is it that we can continue to move this forward in terms of dismantling these very harmful ideas that are embedded in our culture. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this comes up a lot when people talk about policing as well, especially here in the United States. I know some of my listeners are in the UK, but I, I'm, I'm sure they're, they're highly aware of the things that have been happening here too, which is sometimes you literally have to go all the way back to, to find the seeds of where this, these seeds were planted ages and ages ago. So yeah. Alice, how would you comment on that? Yeah, I would say uh, probably two things, uh, you know, that uh, 
for a lot of people who are listening and so eager to go on their summer vacations and, uh, you know, just go buck wild. I, <laughs> I feel this, but, uh, you know, I have to say that as somebody who, you know, is disabled, high risk, who is fully vaccinated, I don't feel safe yet. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people who are in my situation as well, and that includes a lot of chronically ill and immunocompromised people who are in every age range. So let's remember that. That the pandemic is not going to end anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we need to also continue a lot of the practices that has kept us safe, such as worry pass, and such as social distancing, and such as having keeping the remote options, mm-hmm. you know, the virtual options to work, to learn, to socialize, to participate in cultural activities. I think these are the things that I want us to, you know, continue to take forward in the future because uh, we also need to realize not only is this pandemic not over yet by a long shot in this country, but clearly globally, mm-hmm. but also there will be not to be a Debbie Downer, but future pandemics. Right. Yeah, we really need to think about all the hard lessons we've learned and invest in our communities and invest and build up our infrastructure because this has been a failure on a lot of levels. But I think the most very, you know, the largest failure is the failure of uh, infrastructure. And mm-hmm. I think uh, that to me is something that I hope people will take note and, you know, for those who are in power to really start picking, planning for the next one. Right. Yes. And, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, I just want to get back to normal. But normal wasn't actually very good. Uh, normal wasn't good for lots and lots of people. And so mm-hmm. I agree with you. I, I think I hope to see accessibility options continue for students, for for workers, as you point out. But also, you know, in some ways, the pandemic has opened a window to many people um, and they've lost an illusion of control that people with disabilities, that people who are minorities, that people who struggle to make ends meet don't ha- didn't have that illusion to start with. And so in a way, it's been an interesting leveler. I hope that it means people have greater empathy and are willing to reach out to their communities to build back, you know, the trust and the and local is very important. Um, knowing that you have people to trust in your own community is very important. And I do think that that has become really crucial during these months of isolation. I hope that we've taken a turn there, but it's always um, <laughs> the future really depends on what we do right now uh, here and today. So thank you both for being with me. Um, do you have any last words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? As much as we've talked about the vaccine rollout, I just want to remind everyone that we have we have more rollout to go. Um, we have 
we have kids. They make up like 25% of the U.S. population. And they're going to need to be vaccinated, too, for us to be able to to figure out what's safe and what's not. And I and I share Alice's concern about really safety moving forward and making sure that we're really being inclusive of all of the people who are here in our communities and making sure that we're really going out of our way to help everyone have a more full life. Yeah, and I'll just add that, uh, you know, for people who are in the healthcare or public health field, to, to really, you know, to do better in terms of outreach, ability, uh, uh, messaging and education, mm-hmm. especially with those who are vaccine hesitant, because, you know, let's not demonize or mm-hmm. stigmatize people who have very legitimate concerns and reasons for being hesitant. And again, this speaks to the history of mm-hmm. how medical systems have harmed people historically mm-hmm. so many marginalized communities. So this is really a reflection on the damage, the long-lasting damage, and how mm-hmm. this is why so many groups have been very hesitant and distrustful of the medical system. Absolutely. Absolutely. These are wonderful points. Thank you both for being with me today. For our listeners, there will also be a blog post. And on that blog post will be some biographical information, some links to both of our speakers today. And also, as always, we provide a transcript of what we talk about here on the podcast. So thank you once more for joining us. We're so happy that you could be part of the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore BMJ.